Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we read your word. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Change us to be more like your Son. Jesus, amen. Exodus 33, 12 through 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Will. Uh, Let me now read a New Testament section of Scripture. This comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As you know, this summer we're going through the uh, two books of Thessalonians, and, and I drew this chapter. So hear God's word. Paul, Silvus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the affliction that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, and in, uh, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those, all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work by, uh, of his faith by his power. So the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're in a grocery store and a person you know pretty well uh, finds you and tells you a lot of things about 
herself. She's talking and goes on and on. She finishes talking about herself and says, well, that's about all I have to say about myself. What do you think about me? You go, hmm, well, you know, there is the Holy Trinity, as we know, and there's also the unholy Trinity. You know the unholy Trinity? Me, myself, and I. Right. Martin Luther said that uh, people are curved in on themselves. And it kind of makes sense. Wherever you go, guess who's there? You are. Okay? Got that. 4,000 years of human experience kind of testifies to the validity that we are a selfish people. Uh, We are narcissistic. Uh, We uh, look after ourselves. We are number one. Now, I'm going to call you in a few minutes. Uh, We all are what I call glory thieves. We are glory thieves. And I'll describe that a little bit more in a minute. But before we do that, I want to show you a contrast. I want to show you something that's just totally different. Now, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance for all you Cowboy fans here. Uh, this are, these are Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, I'm sorry David Mullen is not here to enjoy this. But um, anyway, uh, the, the Eagles won the Super Bowl. And after the game was over, they interviewed uh, two, two, two of the players and the coach. And I want you to see the difference. And these guys were not um, glory thieves by any minute. By any minute. Okay? Please. Double zero. How do you explain this, that nine years ago you're coaching in high school and here you are with this trophy? I can only give uh, the praise to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for giving me this opportunity. What was that feeling like? You're in the huddle and you know that play is being called. What are you thinking? Uh, I better score. I mean, glory to God, first and foremost. We wouldn't be here without him this team. Just another game, right, Nick? Yeah, just another game. (laughs) Unbelievable. All glory to God. Obviously, Lily really likes this mic. She, she has no idea. <laughs> All right. So you get the key word for our time this morning is glory. That's the word we're going to really investigate today because that's the key word in this chapter of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, glory has a, it's a, it's a lot, of, lot of different meanings and according to the context of which the word is used. But there are two words. If you're, if you're following me in your little outline, there is a little outline. I kind of joked. Um, a little earlier that I'm a little hard to follow possibly at points, trying to speak a little slower today, but the uh, the idea is if you want to follow me along, there's two definitions of glory in your outline, and I think they're they're good. The first one is this, beyond comprehension, the indescribable magnitude of all God's attributes put together. So when you talk about their glory, and Will read that story about Moses, where the glory of the Lord passed before Moses, and he just saw a little part of it, because it's it's supremely incomprehensible. The magnitude is indescribable. Talking about God's glory, it's a huge concept. Tim Keller said this about talking about God's glory. He said this: "This is not a tame God. This is not a God you can figure out or expect to figure out. This is a God beyond your comprehension." Now, be careful here. I am certainly not saying the Bible says nothing that you can understand. So God took the initiative to reveal himself to us. We couldn't figure him out. He has revealed part of his character, but we don't have the total picture. We can't understand that. It's a little bit like trying to fit the Atlantic into a thimble. There's no way you can get your arms around who God is. He's he's indescribable, magnificent. That's why when you use the word glory, again, as Will read that in Exodus 33, that's kind of the context of glory. God's glory is indescribable. But there's a second way, I think, that the word glory is used in this passage today, and it has to do with a second definition, honor, weighty, 
something that matters, something of supreme importance. Now, when you watch that little the eagle clip, that deal, you got the feel. They, they, were giving, they were giving weight to somebody besides, hey, look what we did. They were giving honor to somebody else besides them. Uh, and that's what glory means in this context. To, to give weight to it is uh, and giving recognition and honor to it is another way that the word glory is used in this text. Now, God is an author, it says in Scripture, of every good gift that we have. Thus, he deserves all the glory for everything that he bestows. But our struggle, again, back to that part about being uh, a glory thieves, uh, we struggle with giving him the glory. We, we, we rest in other people or other things that we give glory to. Um, and even ourselves, when we do things, even for God's glory, we want recognition. We want to be seen as capable. And so we kind of steal the glory, even in the midst of trying to give that to him. Now, um, people say they, well, I believe in God, and I'm a Christ follower, but let's say they cheat on their taxes. Uh, what they're doing, they're giving more weight to money than they are to God. They're giving honor or uh, um, um, recognition to the money over their walk with Christ. They are, they are glory thieves. Or if you're in a relationship and, and say a, a person breaks up with you and you're devastated and you just you can't get over it, it just destroys you. Well, you're probably in, you're giving weight, more weight than it deserves to that relationship than you are giving glory to God. Now, uh, I've worked with uh, Howard Griffin for about eight years. And when I first met him, I, I recognized this. And, and he's, he's, he's been consistent all the way along. If you walked up to Howard after a sermon and you said to Howard Griffin, man, that was a great message. Thanks so much. You know what Howard's going to say? Praise be to God. That's right. And so what Howard's doing is he's saying, hey, thanks for that in a sense. But that, that's, that's the Lord's work. So, and I've always admired that. You know, he'll, every time he'll say, thanks be to God. So he is, in, in a sense, trying to give the glory, the, the weight uh, to the Lord for uh, things that are good. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Okay, so that word glory, that's a key concept, right, in this first chapter of, first, uh, th- the second chapter, second Thessalonians chapter one. Key concept, two definitions. But before I get there, before I get to the meat of this text, I want to give you a little context for uh, the letter of 2 Thessalonians. Now, Paul was a church planter. In the year 49 or 50, uh, he planted this church in Thessaloniki. Um, and he, along with Silas and Timothy, they did that. And uh, this, so this church, this letter was written around 51, one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote. And so these, these believers were young Christ followers. This was not a mature congregation by any means. Uh, this town of Thessaloniki is the second largest town in Greece. Paul had a habit when he planted churches, he would go to commercial centers and major locations to plant churches. Now, a little bit of a side here today to tell you, uh, I have a sister, I have three sisters. One of my sisters lives in Thessaloniki. Okay, she lives in Greece. She married a Greek. They have two little Greek, now they're grown Greek kids. Uh, in 1985, my wife and I visited my sister in Thessaloniki. We were there for about eight hours. That was long enough. We got out of there. No joke. The, uh, there's a story there. Ask me later about that. I'm not going there at this point. Okay, about eight hours we were there. All right. So, Paul was there a little bit longer than that, though he wasn't there a whole long time. Acts chapter 17, you can read about Paul's visit to Thessaloniki. Uh, he preached the gospel. Uh, uh, Gentiles and Jews responded. 
After that, some of the Jews got jealous. They didn't like the idea of people following Jesus and the idea of some other folks, another king besides Caesar. And so Paul and his friends make an abrupt, uh, they, they left abruptly out of Thessaloniki. Now, the, uh, there's eight chapters in the two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, eight chapters there. Every chapter involves something about the second coming. So it is replete throughout both of these letters that Paul is addressing some problems that these young believers had about their understanding of the second coming of Christ. Also in this letter, Paul uh, opens it up with what he often does, uh, wishing uh, to the, the Thessalonians uh, grace and peace. It always makes sense. Grace comes first in Jesus Christ. Peace follows. Those are both grounded in their walk with Jesus. Paul strikes a real balance here, too, in verses 3 and 4, where he thanks God for what is going on in the Thessalonians' lives. He says, Lord, thank you that you are at work. But it didn't stop right there. He also says to the Thessalonians, man, you guys are growing in love. You're growing in faith. You're surviving amidst persecution and suffering. And I really want to, so he affirms them and he thanks God for what he is doing in their lives. It's interesting when he talks about suffering, when he says that you are suffering for your faith in Christ, we often think, oh, people suffer, they're doing something wrong. Really, suffering is part of the following, of following Christ. Paul says that suffering is an evidence that God is at work in their lives. Uh, Jesus learned obedience in that which he suffered. Those who live God's lives in Christ Jesus will suffer. So Paul affirms them that they are handling their suffering well. Part of what it is. So that's a little context for this, for this uh, second letter of Thessalonians. Now back to the word glory. Back to the word glory. You notice in your outline, there are four different ways uh, that glory is used in this chapter. The first way glory is used in verse 7 is uh, the glory that uh, Jesus is going to show when he returns. It's going to be a glorious event. Now, Jesus' glory had already been seen when he came the first time. John 1.14, you remember that passage. It's a, it's a famous one. It says this, The Word became flesh, talking about Jesus the first time he came, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen what? His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we saw Jesus' glory the first time he came, but when he comes again, it's going to be something. He just, there are three words they use to describe Jesus' second coming. One, he says it came from heaven. That basically means it was God's decision when to come. It wasn't our call. It was God's decision from heaven. Second, he says the second coming with blazing fire, meaning basically he's going to come in judgment. The first time when Jesus came, he came to save. The second time he comes, he's coming in judgment. And finally, it says, he came with the powerful angels. So that means it was, it's going to be spectacular. Oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing, glorious. You know, these indescribable attributes of God will be revealed. So, as, as the saying goes, which is really true, when Jesus comes back, he's going to be large and he's going to be in charge. That's right. He will be. So, glorious. So the glory of, of, the, of Jesus will, will be seen at his second coming. Second, though, the way glory is used in this chapter is that the glory will be seen in us. The, God's glory will be seen in us. That's amazing. So we're not just going to be observing this glorious occasion. We're going to be participating in it. It's a little bit like a light bulb that has that filament in the middle that when you turn the light on, 
It, it, it glows. Not with its own glow, but the glow of the electricity and things that are there. We are going to reflect the glory of the Father at his second coming. John Stott describes it this way. We will be radically and permanently changed, being transformed into his likeness. And in our transformation, his glory will be seen, for we will glow forever with the glory of Christ. So we will be included in it. And that indeed is good news. Now the third way glory is being used in this passage, you can see it, is uh, verse 12. Uh, Paul says, it says this, it says, that our Lord may be glorified in you and you in him. So in other words, this glory isn't going to happen in our lives only at the end of time. That glory has already started. And, and Paul is hoping to see in the Thessalonians that glory will grow in their lives. And hopefully in our lives as well, God's glory will be more and more clearly seen, his glory. So it's begun when you come to Christ, but God wants that glory to grow and be more more seeable. So the end times will confirm what has been begun already. Spiritual disciplines, kind of an interesting name, but when you participate in corporate worship, as you're doing here today, or as you get into God's Word and you read it, or you spend time in prayer or solitude, or you're using your gifts in service to others, those are all ways that, that Christ has formed in you or His glory will be more clearly seen. Three ways. The fourth way that glory is used in this chapter is its glory departed. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about glory departed in a second. It's a, it's a tough discussion. And it already comes under judgment. Judgment. Now, Independence Day, Labor Day, Memorial Day, that's good. Judgment Day, not so good. Now, but I'm, here to make, I'm here to make a little plea. I'm going to make a little plea with you all. That I think there's some good aspects to Judgment Day. I want you to think about that, about Judgment Day. Now, all world religions have, there's a Judgment Day in, in, in all of them. But the real difference is this. In all the world's religions, karma or your reincarnation, all that kind of stuff that happens, it's all based upon your, what? Behavior in this world. What happens is in all world religions, all the cults, if you look into them, you look at them, it's all about works. It's all about what you do. Your good is here and your bad is here. And you hope when you get there, after you die, you're going to be evaluated and judged by what you've done. It's all about works. The gospel, though, is radically different. The gospel says this, it's not do, 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 it's done. It's what Christ has done for you. The cross is where Christ paid the price. By his shed blood, your sins were were atoned for or covered, and Christ took the punishment that you deserve. So the Christian view of Judgment Day is radically different than any other, what I would call man-made religion. It is an issue of grace. I had a good friend of mine, Dan Jenkins, who was my neighbor across the street. Dan was a medical doctor, and he worked in hospice, and Dan was just a great guy. I miss Dan even today. And Dan would tell, we'd chat in the, in, the, in the street, and he would say, he said, you know, Murray, Christians die well. Christians die well. Because we know before we die where we're going. We know our destination. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So we don't have that, those fears that overcome so many people because their works are being evaluated and judged. So for us, Judgment Day is, is, a, is, a, is a sure deal because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now Hebrews 7.27 says this, 
Just as man is destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. Now, we are not, as Christ followers, we are not judged as far as our destination, heaven or hell, where we're going. Jesus determined that by his death on the cross. But each one of us, as the scripture talks about, will be judged for our works. We're, uh, we're not judged, we're, we're, we don't gain salvation by our works, but we gain salvation for good works. The result of that walk with Christ, that experience with Jesus, transforms us where we want to do good works. We're not earning his favor. But we're showing the glory or the love of Christ in that regard. So we do, Christians will experience a judgment of works. Not where you're heading, but a judgment of works. Now, there's some things I want to say about there. There are two really things that we can be thankful for. There is judgment day. We can be thankful. There's good news about judgment day. And you can see this on your outline. The first one is this. The first reason we can be, uh, that judgment day is good news is this. Now, you remember in the book of Luke, the book of Luke, they have a day where Jesus is in a town and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a worship day and the, the rich people are coming in and there's a box, there's a box in front of the synagogue. And what people do, they usually put their money and their, their offering in that box in the front of the synagogue and Jesus is there. So the people like put some big bucks in there, that kind of stuff. But then a poor widow comes in and she puts really all she has, a couple of pennies in the box. And you know, what the, you know what the Bible says at that point? Two key words. You know what those key, two key words are? It says this, Jesus saw. Jesus saw. You see, if there is no judge, if there is no judgment day, really all is meaningless. Because if there's a judgment day, if there's a day of reckoning, it tells us that no sacrifice, no matter how small, no matter nobody sees in the world sees, no matter what happens, it counts. It means something. The things that have been done are not forgotten. Everything you do counts. Judgment day means he sees, he knows. The second reason judgment day really is good news is you can forgive. There is a judge who will right all wrongs. All the evil, the cruel, the mean, the heartless things that are done that are not covered by the blood of Christ, God's judgments will set right the scales of justice. Again, Tim Keller says this. Does not that seem harsh? Do you not realize what this means? When you really take the good news of the doctrine of judgment day into your heart, it should make you the most patient, the most forgiving, the most gentle person possible. Because what God is saying is, you don't have to be the judge because there is one. You know, Jesus talked more about judgment than all the other writers in the Bible combined. There is a judgment day. You can let go of it. You can forgive because our heavenly father in heaven will see that justice is done. So finally, let's get back to that glory departed. The, the, the glory departed. And this is a part of the judgment day. And this, again, is a difficult section of scripture. And it, it's, 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 it's hard to hear in some ways. But it's, it's the true news of the gospel. And here, is, here it is from 2 Thessalonians again. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord 
and from the majesty of his power. Wow. Clear question is this. What is everlasting destruction? Simply put, it's God removing his presence. Now the Bible says this, that everyone is living off of the presence of God. If you're in a field enjoying the physical sun, or if you're in a cave hiding from it, your survival depends upon the sun. In the same way, everything that we have in life, uh, nature, music, art, relationships, work, joy, every good gift we have comes from God. And because of his presence, when his presence is removed, whether you're in the field enjoying the sun or you're in the cave doing your own thing, you're going to freeze. You're going to freeze to death because of God's removal of his presence. John Stott puts it this way. For the horror of this end will not, so much, uh, will, not, will not be so much the pain which may accompany as a tragedy which is inherent in it. Namely that human beings made by God, like God, for God, should spend eternity without God, irrevocably banished from his presence. If you want nearness to God, you'll get it. You want distance from God, you'll get it. I've heard it said that hell is the last gift he gives to people who will accept nothing else from his hand. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the world in the end. There are those people who say to God, thy will be done. And there are other people whom God says to them in the end, thy will be done. If you don't want his presence, He's not going to drag you into eternity. Finally, the last point, five, marveling, marveling at the cross. In verse 10, Paul says this, he he comes to be glorified in, in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who believe. Now, when you marvel at something, that is something way beyond your expectations. Way, if you marvel at it, something happens way beyond. Like if it rained so much in Amarillo that we were never concerned about the rain in this dry part of the world. I would marvel at that fact that it's just so much rain. That's amazing we experience that. Or if you're a Texas Ranger fan, you're going to marvel if you ever win the World Series. This is never going to happen. Like Chicago Cubs, it happened recently. But anyway, Texas Ranger fans, it, I'd marvel. I'd exceed my expectations if the Texas Rangers ever won the World Series. But what are we called to marvel at? What we marvel at, again, it captures our focus. It takes your attention. It wins your heart. That's what you marvel at. What do we as Christ followers, when Paul talks about they marveled at those, what are we marveling at? I think you can make a point is we marvel at the cross. We marvel that God's love was so amazing that he would lose his glory. And we see that Jesus had God's glory when he came, before, but he lost his glory at the cross that you and I might become glorious. So as we marvel at the cross, our lives are transformed. He will be glorified in us as we marvel at the cross. We will be transformed into his likeness as we marvel 
at what he has done for us. Amazing love, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. May we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. Uh, Lord, these are hard teachings. Uh, Lord, you are an amazing God. Uh, Lord, we recognize that uh, you are large and in charge. You are working your purposes and plans out. We pray, Lord, that many more and more, you're probably waiting for that final day for more and more people to come to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that we might become more and more glorious in the fact that we reflect you and give you the honor, give you the weight, give you the recognition that you deserve.